Ian asked me to speak on unity, and I'm going to do what I'm told. So, Revelation chapter 7, and we're going to read from verse 9. We all good? All there? Revelation 7. Let's read then. After this, this is John says, I looked... And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So here's a sneak peek into heaven, right? And maybe you can see some of the faces, maybe faces from Gracemount, faces from Hope City. I wonder if you're there. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice. We like loud voices. Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. How good it is to shout loud, God saved me. Have that. All the angels were standing around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Now remember that posture, okay? Come back to that. Saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. That's such a good way to answer all the questions you said. <laughs> sir, you know. And you can just answer them. Uh, where are we? And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They've washed their robes. You've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. How good to be washed in white. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of water, living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There's a cheeky little three-point sermon at the end. Sheltered, shepherded, satisfied. That'll preach. But we're not going to do that. Here's why. We can read that and we just sung some great songs and we could just delight in the kind of, let's have a wee holy huddle and some hallelujah high fives. Isn't it good to be Christians together in this room? Isn't heaven going to be great? And we could be there. Here's my issue, though, my problem. I live in the real world most of the time. And Revelation 7 is in heaven. And we ain't there yet. The reality is, on earth, the church doesn't quite look like that always. On church... It can look more like a bunch of toddlers fighting over toys than a bunch of angels worshipping Jesus. Churches can be a mess, correct? They split, we fight. Maybe there's people in this room who aren't speaking to each other. Maybe there's people at these churches in this room because we've left other churches because they were scrapping and fighting. Churches are hospitals for the sick. And who likes to hang out in a hospital? Who's for expensive parking, contagious diseases, MRSA, and long waiting lists? Hey, not. Hospitals are 
awful places. Can you tell him a glass half empty kind of guy? <laughs> Unity. Well, I'm just Scottish, I think. But that's the church on earth, isn't it? Actually, you can look at every single book in the New Testament and almost every single one of them is written to a church that is an absolute state. Miles off unity. And actually, I want to show you that. We're going to walk through every single book in the New Testament. I'm going to show you what an absolute mess they are. So if you've got your Bible, you might want to kind of flick through just to make sure I hit every book. And I just want to show you this, that we're going to get to Revelation 7 at the end, but I want to show you the problem first, okay? Are you kind of tracking? We want that, but it often feels more like this. So we start off in the Gospels. You're in Luke at the moment. You can take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus gathers these disciples, 12 boys, and they're right next to Jesus. He spent three years with Jesus, but what is the state of them? At times you get glimpses where they are arguing with each other about who is the greatest. Really? They're even arguing about who gets the best seats in heaven. There's even a point where they see other disciples of Jesus casting out demons and they run to Jesus and say, Jesus, they were doing this demon expulsion thing, but we told them to stop because that's our toy. What a state. Jesus' disciples. Now, you go from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John into Acts. Acts is a book of remarkable unity in spite of a church that is getting an absolute hammering in persecution. And yet, two of the apostles, the key players in the book of Acts, split and go their separate ways because of a boy called John Mark that they disagree whether or not he should or should not be in ministry. In the book of Acts, you also get this group in the church that's called the Circumcision Party. That's a party I do not want to be at. (laughs) But these guys are trying to say to the apostles that you should not be taking the good news of Jesus to Gentiles. Now that's just fundamental to what Jesus taught. Romans is a book, a letter written to a group of churches where Jews have come to Jesus just as Gentiles have come to Jesus. And the occasion of the letter is for the very purpose that the church is on the potential verge of splitting because the church is diverse. It's written to unite them because the presence of both groups is causing significant trauma. It's a doctrine book, but it's a unity book. Romans, 1 Corinthians. Now, if the church is a hospital, 1 Corinthians is the A&E department. What an absolute mess. Here's what you've got going on in 1 Corinthians. They are dividing over which leader they think is the bestest. Oh, I like Dave. He's so nice. Ian's a bit sharp, isn't he? I'm Dave's guy. I like Saul because he cries all the time. (laughs) Andy's just so miles off his emotional kind of spectrum. He's just like, ah, like I'm Saul's guy. That's what's going on in 1 Corinthians. They're even taking each other to court within the membership. When it comes to communion, this thing that's meant to be about unity, the rich folk who don't have to work as long turn up early, get absolutely bloated on the communion wine so that when the poor folk turn up after a long day's shift, there is nothing left. They're even using spiritual gifts as a way, a kind of weapon to wield at other people and say, I'm better than you, I'd have no need of you. 
2 Corinthians. There's a huge chasm between the Apostle Paul and the church itself. Paul describes it as painful. How do you like that as a Google review of your church? Oh, painful. They're questioning whether or not he's a legit apostle. And there's even shepherds in that church out to destroy other sheep. Galatians. Here's how the church in Galatians is described. They are devouring and biting one another. Now, if you know the rules of fighting, biting, biting is off limits. That's, nah. It's like below the belt stuff. You're not biting. Yet here's a church. The language is you are consuming one another. Ephesians. Now, Ephesians is a very general letter written probably to churches all over the place. And yet one of the fundamental points of Ephesians, like Romans, is unity across diversity. And Ephesians applies that to husbands and wives. And we need that. He applies it to parents and children. We need that. He applies it to employers and employees. We need that. In Ephesians, he ends the book by giving Christians the armor of God. Here's the surprise. You need the armor as much in a church as you need it in the world. Because friendly fire is real. Philippians. Here's a letter. In Philippians, Paul calls out two women in the church. He names them. Imagine that. Imagine Matt this morning just says, right, you and you, stand up. Get on. What is wrong with you? And yet he says, this is Paul, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. When you read about the Philippian church being born in the book of Acts, you read of uh, a very well-to-do business owner called Lydia who gets saved. You read of a slave girl, demon-possessed fortune teller who gets saved. And you read of a jailer who gets saved. What a mix of folk. Imagine that. Wealthy businesswoman, former demon-possessed fortune teller, and a prison warden. Now that is going to be a beautiful mess when they rub up against each other every single week in church, isn't it? That's why Paul has to write, make my joy complete by being like-minded. Colossians is next. Now in Colossians, there's a big issue with false teaching, which seems to be inside and outside of the church. But a large part, the second part of the letter is saying to church, these are the characteristics that you need to put off. These are the characteristics of Jesus you need to put on. And all of them are corporate things. They're not issues if you're sat in your own, in your own room just having a wee church service with yourself and Jesus. You don't need any of the characteristics Paul tells you. Don't be envious. That's not an issue when it's just me, but it's an issue when I'm in a room full of folk. And he's going to say in this letter in Colossae, here in church, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but all is, but Christ is all and is in all. Why does he need to say that? Because each of these groups is probably a little clique in the church, keeping themselves to themselves. 1 Thessalonians. Now, Here's the thing. We think, ah, oh, it's all about rich oppressing poor, and we're all anti-Tory if you're in the scheme. And all these things, ah, oh, Labour, all oh, this SNP. Here's the issue in 1 Thessalonians. Poor folk 
who can't be bothered working in the church. So Christians who are too lazy to get off their backside decide to sponge off the rich Christians so that they don't have to do any work. Sound familiar? But Paul says, now don't take that as a goal to emulate, all right? It's not the point of it being in the letter. The point of it is to say that is a disease that will kill your church from the inside. The scary thing is that in 2 Thessalonians, the lazy Christians are still exploiting the rich Christians to the point where Paul has to step up his language and says, in the light of Jesus' return, and hear this, laziness is incompatible with faithfulness to Jesus. It also means if you are a rich Christian, you need to be careful how you give to those who are in poverty. You could do it in a way that facilitates their laziness. That's not wise giving. So uh, we still, is this making sense so far? Right, two Thessalonians, let's keep going. 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy, there is a certain degree of friction that comes again just from false teaching. One of the ways Paul says you've got to combat that is by getting good elders in place, good leaders. What are some of the characteristics Paul says must be in church leaders? He gives a couple of negatives. Do not get a leader who is quarrelsome. Why does he have to say that? Because most of us are quarrelsome. Why does he have to tell this young man, Timothy, repeatedly, do not argue over meaningless words because young men argue over meaningless words that only causes division. He says, if you want to be in church leadership, strength, arrogance, greed can be nowhere. It'll kill a church. Second Timothy, Paul's been abandoned. He goes to the extent where he says, everyone has abandoned me. And he calls out two names, Phygelus and Hermogenes. Probably guys that Paul was tight with. Probably leaders. He turned his back on them. Titus follows a similar thing. How do you stop a church from splitting? How do you especially stop a new church from being influenced from the inside by dangerous false teaching? He says, you get elders in place. Now, Philemon's a great little book. If you've not read Philemon, go home and read it tonight. Here's a book about unity that is meant to specifically make enemies into brothers. Here's the scenario on Philemon. Paul is writing to a guy called Philemon. Clever name. Philemon's a wealthy dude. He's got a lot of money. He had slaves. One of his slaves nicked a bunch of stuff from him and bolted. Now, he was good at that part, but then he gets caught. He ends up in prison, probably for his stealing, and he lands in a cell next to the Apostle Paul. Guess what Paul does? Tells him about Jesus. Guess what happens next? He gets saved. Guess what Paul says Onesimus has to do when he gets out of prison? Go repentant back to Philemon. And so Paul is writing to Philemon saying, Onesimus is coming back. He's coming back not as a slave you should whip, but as a brother you should give a room to. He's not an enemy. He's family. Great little book. But it shows that at the heart of a church can be deep things that divide. Hebrews, I'm probably trying to wangle it in. It's not a huge amount about division. It is about perseverance, and you're going to need that if you're part of a church. Let's keep going, though. James, here's a great one. And this is where those of you who are poorer and maybe prone to the kind of uh, laziness thing, benefits grabbing thing, here's where we kind of maybe feel a bit better. We like James because what's going on in James? The rich people are bang at it. 
You walk into church as a poorer person, you take a seat. A nice, rich person in the finest of clothes that dines on George Street and all these things walks in. There's no seats left. So they get you off your seat. Poor guy, look at the state of you. Come on, Mr. Nice Wealthy Man, have the best seat in the house. Later on in the book of James, you can go back to that seat if you want, sorry. Later on in the book of James, they say that the wealthy people in the church are employing the poor members of the church, making them do all the work in a long day's labor and graft, and then refusing to pay them wages. It says, you rich Christians are fattening yourselves for slaughter, living in luxury, and the poor people in your church are crying, and the Lord hears them. It's in a church. 1 Peter Again, a bit like Hebrews, the threat is more dissolving in the culture rather than any division in the church. So we'll skim over that one. Second Peter is probably a bit more applicable. In Second Peter, he traces this divisive false teaching in a church. It doesn't just go through the New Testament, but is seen in all the prophets of the old. Now, we're not going to go through all the prophets of the old, all right? Oh, we can do it later. Um, so two Peters in there. John, let me, these letters of John. You cannot claim to love God and hate a brother or sister. Why do you think he has to say that to the church? Because that's what they're doing. The second letter of John, he says, this is the Christian life, love and hospitality. Why do you think he has to do it? Because they're shutting their homes off and they don't want to share. Third John, he's talking about uh, confronting a troublemaker. There'll be troublemakers in churches. Jude speaks of shepherds among God's people who are feeding themselves and exploiting the sheep. And even when you get into Revelation, you have seven churches that are just as bang at it and below the par as any of the other ones that we've seen. Now, are you depressed yet? Now, it can be tempting. You hear that. Maybe it's been your experience in churches and you just go, sack the church. Let's just go, me, Jesus, singing his mercy is more in the shower, and that is me. That's safe. Now, it may feel safe, but we know it's not right because Jesus prays for the unity of churches. He saves us not just to be individual Christians, but to be part of his church. All the letters that we've read, most of them are written to churches. Most of the images for Christians in the New Testament are corporate images, family, body, assembly, household. You can't claim to love the bridegroom Jesus and hate and ignore his bride. That won't do. So how on earth do we cope with one another in a church where these unity things are hard as we wait for heaven. That's what I want to know. Now, that's been the longest introduction in the world. But are you kind of wanting an answer? Thanks. Here we go. Revelation chapter 7. After I looked, and there before me was a great multitude no one could count, standing before the throne and before the land, they were wearing white robes, holding palm branches in their hand. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God. Now, that means if you are a Christian here today, you are a miracle of God. 
Don't ignore everyone else for a minute. If you are here and he has taken you from death to life and slavery to freedom and hell to heaven and from nothing to something and from evil to good, you are a miracle of God's grace. That is an unbelievable act of salvation belongs to our God. And if it is you standing in the shower singing his mercy is more, that is a miracle. Amen? You are not what you once were. But it takes a greater miracle. It takes a bigger miracle. It takes a greater display of God's glory to create this. Look at what we've just seen. Look at all the mess that is in Christianity. That means that tonight, don't take this for granted. Do not... Think this is a, a kind of mundane thing. What else would gather a bunch of freaks into a room like this who have nothing else in common? Here's what I bring to this room on my own. I bring my sin. I bring my heart that is full of fights and quarrels, competitiveness and comparisons, envy and strife, gossip and bitterness, pride and slander. That's what I bring to the party. You having me? And you're the same. And yet the gospel saves me from hell, but it saves me from me, and it saves you from me, the old me. And I need you to help me put that stuff behind me. And to walk in the newness of life that Jesus calls his church to be. So we need to pray for this, protect this, uh, fight for this unity. How do we do that? Let me finish by saying, it takes a certain posture. Now the posture in Revelation 7 was what? Flat on your face before the throne of God and before the Lamb. You want to preserve unity, you fall on your face. Now, let me explain that. Let's pick on you again. Come on. Right. Some of you know Caleb. Caleb's been to Grace Mount, so most of us will have seen the beard before. Now, imagine, stand this way, face me. I know it's hard. Imagine me and Caleb are just in a room together, and all we have is each other, and all we have to look at is each other. Now, yeah, we'll pr- we pray for you, seriously. Now, it's fine at first, nice beard, funky accent, he's quite a nice guy. What happens after two minutes? Uh, maybe it's longer than two minutes. But the longer all I'm doing is staring at Caleb, guess what happens? The more annoying he gets. Is that not true when you live with someone? Yes. Ask my wife. It's the same with me. It doesn't matter. All I have to look at is Caleb. Even if I like the guy, even if I if I do like the guy. But if all I'm doing is looking at him, the longer I spend with him, the more I'll notice the little faults, the little quirks, the more chances we'll have at, like misunderstandings and all these little things that end up. He becomes the lightning rod of all my anger in the world. Is that not true? Any relationship? Now, add the whole room in. Flip me, it gets even more messy. Now, what is the answer if me and Caleb are suddenly maybe the rich oppressing the poor, the poor 
sponging off the rich or just falling out like Syntyche and Uriah? What is the answer? Don't focus on each other. What is the answer? If we're Christians, fall on your face before Jesus. Now, we're going to do this. I want to make the point. So, let's go down here. Right. If someone walks in the room right now, it's like a planking kind of competition. Now, if we are flat on our face before Jesus, what am I no longer obsessed by? Caleb's faults. What am I focused on? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain for my sin, which means that I am no longer consumed by, focused on the sins of my brother, but I'm on my face because I realize how much Jesus has forgiven my sin. If I'm asked to forgive Caleb, if I'm just looking at him, me and him, I'm thinking, no danger, look what he's done to me. When I focus on the lamb on the throne who has forgiven me so much, I realize how nothing in comparison, the sin that he has committed against me. It's no longer enemy and enemy. It is two enemies who have been reconciled by the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. Do you get the point? Do you get that? Don't live like this if you are Christians. This will create disunity. That is the starting point, is the foundation of any church surviving the challenges that are going to come ahead of it. You've, you've been wonderful. But the point is this, the posture of flat on my face before Jesus reminds me I am the problem as much as anyone else. It reminds me I need grace as much as anyone else. It means I got saved by the same means as the most irritating person in my church. And Jesus has forgiven me way more than I will ever have to forgive anyone else. You get the point? So here's the final thing. Any marriage counseling... Any church dispute reconciliation meetings, have them flat on your face in an office room or in someone's living room. Now, you're not going to do that, but you know what I mean? As a posture. Get your eyes on the lamb. And, that, and I'm not saying this is easy. In marriages, in serious things of disunity. But actually, if we find that posture, it will be the power and the strength to keep united rather than to divide. You see the point? You can ask questions if this hasn't been clear. Um, what do I do now? Why don't we pray? Do I pray? Let's pray. Jesus, we are way more sinful than we even realize. If these people knew me as you knew me and know me, they would not like me and they would not want me in this church. And yet your grace can save the vilest offender. And they can unite the vilest offender to the second most vile offender and create a church that brings glory to the name of Jesus. So we pray in Grace Mount Community Church, in Hope City Church, that the unity of these places would be preserved so that the glory, the power, the honor, the strength are given to the Lamb on the throne. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Right, Andy, stick around. Okay, so can we crack on to that next slide?